Well, if you want to open your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 27 of Mark chapter 12. It is good to be back in the pulpit. I've not been in the pulpit for like 14 Sundays. It's good to be back. Yeah. Woo. All right. We'll figure this mic situation out in a second. But it's good to be back. Uh, Amy and I and, and our kids, we got to visit um, uh, another church, different churches every Sunday uh, while on sabbatical and, and got to sit under some good preaching of the word and and uh, bring greetings from our church to uh, a number of churches uh, here locally and then also in, in other states as well. Um, and it was good to be able to sit under uh, good preaching and to hear the word. And, and uh, it also just made me hungry to get back into the pulpit and, and preach again myself. So I'm really glad to be back in the pulpit. Excited to be opening God's word with you together. And uh, if you'd like to stand with me, to begin with, for the reading of God's holy word. Again, we're looking at Mark chapter 12, 18 through 27, as we continue in our uh, 47th Sunday in Mark's gospel. Mark 12, 18 through 27, Mark writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am, not the, or I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks for the truth of your word, and we ask now as we turn to it that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that you would enlighten the eyes of understanding, that we might behold wondrous things from your word. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, for you, Lord, are our rock and our redeemer, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, this past week, I stumbled across a uh, satirical site's list of top 12 questions people ask God when they get to heaven. And listed were questions you might accept or expect, uh, questions you might plan to ask. The, the top question was, 
where were you during season eight of The Office? Um, it's a very common one. Uh, additionally, commonly asked was, what did you think when worship leaders led the course of the Hillsong hit Oceans for the 42nd time in a row? What did you think about that? Uh, where are all the cats? I think we know the answer to that question, uh, right? How do you pronounce the word spelled G-I-F? Uh, no one knows. It's, it's a mystery. We find ourselves here in a series of passages wherein Jesus is getting bombarded with a number of questions, and we mustn't forget that this is Holy Week. This is Passion Week here. A Holy Week, of course, culminates in Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday, but it started the Sunday before with Jesus' triumphal entry, and as Sunday gave way to Monday, we find the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree. And now, over the, the last few passages we're in, and, and still here this Sunday and next week, we're in Tuesday. And uh, I want to call it Tussle Tuesday, if you'll allow me to do that, as all of these different groups that uh, probably belong to the Council of the Sanhedrin are approaching Jesus with ill-intended questions meant to, to discredit Jesus with the crowds or to get him in trouble with Rome. It all started with the chief priests and elders and scribes coming to Jesus in Mark 11, 27 through 33 with a question about his authority. And then last week, my friend Dr. Reisner preached on the, this political question concerning taxes that the Pharisees and the Herodians presented to Jesus. And now this morning, we come to a, a theological question posed by the Sadducees, a group we're going to learn a little bit more about in a moment. But as these Sadducees come to Jesus with their ill-intended question, we find Jesus wisely showing forth the truth and power of God in a way that only He could. And that's what we want to look at this morning together. As we walk through the passage, I want to draw your attention to the wisdom of Jesus, the wonder of resurrection, and the word of truth. The wisdom of Jesus, the wonder of resurrection, and the word of truth. First, though, we see here the wisdom of Jesus. Our passage begins by saying that Sadducees came to Jesus who say that there is no resurrection. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. Now, this is the first and only time that Sadducees are explicitly mentioned here in Mark's gospel. And what you need to understand about them is that a sort of like the Pharisees or the Zealots or the Essenes, the Sadducees were this, this party or this sect within the larger community of Judaism at the time. And, and like those other groups, they had specific beliefs and cultural characteristics that kind of set them apart. Uh, for one, uh, there's some kind of cultural stuff. They were a wealthy, elite, powerful class who were in collusion with the Roman Empire. They, they had a vested interest in the status quo, and they weren't interested in anyone interrupting that, and they thought Jesus very well could be interrupting this. Uh, at that time in Israel, the chief priests, many of the members of the Council of the Sanhedrin, were Sadducees. And they had a, really, a relatively good slice of the power pie when it came to Israel, all thanks to their relationship with Rome. Additionally, they had certain kind of theological beliefs that kind of set them apart, particularly that, that put them in, in, in uh, contrast with the Pharisees. Uh, so, for example, while the canon of Scripture 
according to the Pharisees, included the law, the prophets, the writings, the whole of the Old Testament, as well as the traditions of the elders, the Sadducees only accepted the law, or sometimes called the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So that, that means that they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as the whole of their scriptures. And that made a significant impact on some of their theological beliefs. So while the Pharisees tended to emphasize God's sovereignty, the Sadducees only believed in free will. While the Pharisees believed in the existence of angels, the Sadducees didn't believe any such being existed. Uh, while the Pharisees believed in the ongoing existence of the soul after death in uh, the intermediate state, the Sadducees didn't believe in an intermediate state. They thought the soul died with the body. And while the Pharisees confessed the resurrection of the body, the Sadducees believed that death was final. They believed that after one died, that was it. They no longer existed. Their body would just rot in the ground, never to rise again on the last day. And yet Jesus, obviously, clearly taught the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting and taught that he himself was the resurrection and the life everlasting. And so with Jesus having clearly taught those things, the Sadducees came to him with this question about resurrection. And, and this question, it was probably not pulled out of thin air. This was likely a question that the Sadducees kept in their back pocket when debating Pharisees to utterly confound them on this question of the resurrection of the body. And so the Sadducees thought, you know, we might just put this whole Jesus movement to rest. We might shut this whole thing down if we could discredit him. Let's pull out that old faithful question, the, the question of the seven brothers, shall we? And so this question is meant to show here, what they're trying to do is show that there is a discrepancy between belief in the law of Moses and belief in the resurrection of the body. There's a contradiction here, they think. They think you can't hold to the resurrection of the body and the law of Moses. These two beliefs can't coexist, and here's a case to show you why. So they come to Jesus saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this is in reference to Deuteronomy 25.5. Okay, it's what we call the Leveret Marriage Law. Uh, you, you might remember seeing this in the Old Testament. We preached through Ruth a few years ago. If you were here during that, you might remember Ruth and Boaz. That's the, that's the leveret marriage law in action. And this law was meant to protect widows in those days from utter poverty and destitution, as well as preserve the name and lineage of the deceased. And the law stated that if a married man died without having children, his brother was to take the deceased man's wife as his own to care for her and to raise up offspring who would bear his deceased brother's name and inherit his deceased brother's property and so on and so forth. It's one of those, those civil laws in the Mosaic Covenant that were no longer obligated to practice in the New Covenant, but they did in Israel at the time of Jesus. And so it's, it's a relevant question. It's a relevant story uh, to the Sadducees and, and Israelites at the time. And so here's what they say. They say, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. At this point, these brothers should probably start going, something's wrong here. Uh, this, this is just a, a terribly terrifying story. It sounds like a Terrence Malick film or something. And, and the seven left no offspring. 
And last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. So hopefully you can kind of see where they're going with this. They're trying to illustrate that one can't believe in these leveret marriage laws in the book of Moses while also holding to the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting because such a conundrum could potentially take place and ruin everything. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking right now, these guys don't seem as smart as they think they are. Even still, it's a, it's a convoluted, kind of complicated question. It kind of takes a minute uh, to, to work out all the details. And questions like this often serve as kind of a red herring for those being asked, because what they're trying to do here is trip Jesus up with this complicated, complicated question to confuse him and confound him, to perplex him, to puzzle him, and all so that they might discredit him with this crowd and assert their wisdom and dominance. But their wisdom, as we see here, is no match for the wisdom and understanding and knowledge of Jesus. Jesus, this is true, he's smarter than everyone. Jesus is smarter than everyone. He understands the scriptures better than anyone. They're seeking to confound Jesus with their profound wisdom, but instead he confounds them with his. And so he answers their question in a way that shows their complete lack of understanding of the scriptures, a point which would have baffled them and those watching this conversation, because these guys were seen as the experts, right? They were seen as the educated, the knowledgeable, the wise and he answers in a way that corrects their misunderstanding and shows them their complete error. And so if we kind of, what I want to do here is kind of take a step back and consider the onslaught of questions coming to Jesus here and his ways of handling these questions. Don't we see just such wisdom shining forth? So this is certainly not the main point of the passage. I think this is something worth noticing and considering for us. As, as we, in our Christian walk, in our living missionally, as we handle potential detractors and challengers in our lives, this is relevant. Notice how Jesus doesn't respond to every situation in the same way here on Tussle Tuesday. Back in Mark 11, 27 through 33, well, he doesn't even answer those guys, does he? He doesn't even, in fact, he tells them in verse 33, I'm not going to answer your question. But then later, the Pharisees and the Herodians, now the Sadducees come, and he engages with them. And, and I just, as I was reading this, I was kind of going, why is that? What, 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 why is that? Why is he approaching these situations differently here? And it made me think of Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 are two Proverbs. They're right next to each other. And they seem at first glance to be saying totally different things. Verse 4 says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So here, as we're seeing, there is such thing as a stupid question. There, there is such a thing as a stupid question. You can see examples of them here in Mark 11 and 12. There is such a thing as stupid questions, foolish questions, and Proverbs 26, and Jesus' example here, shows us you might answer stupid questions. You might not answer stupid questions. It all depends on the specific situation, the people involved and present, what the question is, those kinds of different factors in each particular situation. Mark eleven twenty-seven 27 through 33, 
we find Jesus not answering fools according to their folly. He just plainly tells them, I'm not going to answer you. I'm not going to answer a fool here according to his folly, lest I become like him myself. But then last week and this week, here in our text, Jesus did answer the question of fools, these questions that lacked all sincerity and good faith. He answers the Sadducees' foolish question, lest they be wise in their own eyes. He corrects them. He tells them, you are in error. He answers a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And you, in your life, at work, and in your neighborhood, in interactions with friends, at the Thanksgiving dinner table, family, from strangers or acquaintances on social media, there will be times where because you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ, where you're going to be asked questions that are meant to challenge you in what you believe. And at times, those questions will be foolish. They might be foolish. They will sometimes lack sincerity and good faith. They will sometimes just be so utterly ignorant that you don't even know where to start. And here's wisdom. Sometimes you should answer, and sometimes you shouldn't. Perhaps you shouldn't answer if it's only going to get you pulled into needless disputes with people who won't change their mind in the end anyways. Now, sometimes wisdom looks like saying, friend, I love you, but I refuse to get drawn into some intellectual jousting match with you. Other times, wisdom will look like you saying, friend, I'm not sure that you're asking this question in all sincerity, but you're obviously mistaken here, and I want to make sure you understand what the Bible says about the question at hand. Or, 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 or maybe you don't answer even for the sake of the person asking the question, but for the sake of onlookers who might find cause for stumbling if you don't answer the question. I wonder if that's what's happening here with Jesus in our text last week and this week. Jesus answers these fools according to his folly, even though it seems they're not interested in knowing what is good and true and right. Maybe Jesus is answering simply for the sake of those who are witnessing their conversation. All that to say, there are times wherein you ought not answer a fool according to his folly. Lest you get dragged into all sorts of foolishness and become a fool yourself, and yet there are times where you should answer a fool according to his folly, lest he just continue in his foolishness. And that's what Jesus does here in response to the Sadducees. Convoluted story in question. He answers them by showing them, look with me next, at the wonder of resurrection. Pick it up in verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus just plainly tells them, you're wrong. You're in error. And I love this because this, this Greek word translated as wrong here is actually a bit stronger than that. It has behind it the idea of being utterly deceived and deluded. To be one who is, who is wandering about, led astray, while also leading others astray. And the reason that the Sadducees are deluded, Jesus says, is because they know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. They think they're the theological experts, they know nothing of the scriptures, and they know nothing of the power of God who is able to raise the dead and grant them new, everlasting life. And what Jesus is pointing out here is that part of, part of what he's pointing out here is that the Sadducees have an anemic understanding of the, doctor, the doctrine of the resurrection in the first place. They seem to think that the doctrine of the resurrection, the doctrine they reject, is just kind of a mere continuation of this life that we live presently. It's just like this, only forever. 
But in saying that, they don't understand the power of God. Jesus is saying that they don't understand what God is going to do for his resurrected people. They don't understand the weight of glory promised. Verse 25, he says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, it might be helpful here to simply kind of explain some things about what it is we're hoping in and for as Christians. So for many Christians today, specifically in the West and, and specifically in America, we've greatly understood, misunderstood what our final hope is as followers of Christ. For many American Christians, they think that our final hope is that when we die, our souls go to heaven to be with Jesus. And now, that is a true, very important doctrine, something we should count precious, something we should celebrate. The scriptures teach it. It's a precious doctrine. But that's not our final hope as Christians. In fact, throughout Christian history, we've actually called our souls going to heaven to be with Jesus. We've called it the intermediate state because it's intermediate, not permanent. Our final hope as Christians is our souls being reunited with our bodies on the last day to be raised to new eternal life. Just as Jesus, his soul, reunited with his body 2,000 years ago in that tomb, and he was raised to new eternal life. And then we get to dwell in a glorified earth and glorified bodies with the glorified Christ forever and ever. That's the final Christian hope. As the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. He was the first one to be raised, but in him, all his people will be raised up with bodies like his own glorious bodies. The apostle also says in Philippians 3.21, that's our final hope as Christians, a resurrected, fully embodied existence with the resurrected Christ forever. Christ is the prototype for what God is going to do with us and for the entire creation. It's amazing. And, and there will be both some continuity with life as it is now, and there will be some discontinuity with life as it is now. Some things will be the same but better perfected, and some things won't be the same at all. And just a quick survey of what we find in the New Testament about the resurrection would reveal that there's going to be no more sadness, sickness, suffering, sin, no more death, no more pain, hallelujah, and as Jesus says here, there's also going to be no more marriage. No more marriage. He says, as it relates to marriage, that we'll be like the angels in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that we will be angels. Okay, that's another misunderstanding people have with texts like this, is that in eternity we'll be turned into angels. That's not what Jesus says. He says that when it comes to marriage, we'll be like the angels in heaven. Angels don't marry. They are entirely preoccupied with the glory of God. And in the age to come, like them, we won't marry or be given in marriage or continue in a state of marriage if we're married in this age. And that might feel kind of disappointing to some of us. So we wonder, why not? Why won't we be given in marriage or, or, or marry? Why won't we be married in that day? Well, for one, the cultural mandate to, uh, it, from Genesis 1, 26 to 28, to procreate and fill the earth with people will no longer be necessary. Like the angels, we won't die. We won't need to continue to fill the, fill the earth with 
uh, people to carry on the cultural mandate. The earth, the goal of the earth will have been completed, so there's no need to go on doing that. Additionally, like the angels, we won't have need of marriage for the sake of companionship because our companionship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ will be so much greater than it is now. In eternity, you will know and be known by your brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that married couples can only dream about now. And most importantly, most importantly, we will be so satisfied and enthralled by the glory of God and in our communion with God that marriage will seem irrelevant. In, in the age to come, we will experience what, what Christians have often called the beatific vision. It literally means this, this happier, this blessed sight. That is to say, we will, we will see and experience the presence of God in such a satisfying, overwhelmingly joyful way that marriage will just kind of seem irrelevant. In fact, we should say here that in that day, the purpose of marriage will have been completed. The purpose of marriage is to point us toward this, this intimacy and communion that the people of God will experience with their Savior in that day. Marriage, marriage is, a, is a placeholder of sorts. It's, it's a shadow. But in that day, we will see, our eyes will be turned to see not the shadow itself, but the thing that casts the shadow. We'll see the substance of what marriage is just a shadow of. And that's part of the, the wonder of resurrection it will be so overwhelmingly joyful and satisfying that we won't miss marriage or feel like we're missing out on it. It won't even cross our minds to miss it. It would be unthinkable. To desire or miss marriage in that day would be like, you know, like me going on a long trip away from my wife and I go into a conference or, or something like that. Going on a long, long journey, being gone for weeks even, and, and then coming home to my wife and family, and then just walking right past my wife to a picture of her hanging on the wall, and instead of embracing her and, 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 and greeting her, and I just walk right past her to marvel at a picture of her hanging on the wall. That's what it would be like for us to be thinking about marriage or missing it in that day. You see, marriage is just a picture of what we're going to enjoy and wonder at for all of eternity. We'll be so satisfied in our worship of and communion with our Savior that the picture and placeholder of marriage will be a foggy memory. And, and that has something important to say to those of us here this morning. I know that there are some of us here this morning who are not married but would like to be, and, and to hear that there's a possibility that we could get through this life without the prospect of marriage and then spend eternity without ever having experienced it, that seems kind of disappointing. A friend, I, I hope you're encouraged this morning. There will be no FOMO in glory. There will be no FOMO. You don't need to have FOMO now, and there will certainly not be any FOMO in glory. One theologian, Greg Lanier, says about this text, he says, for, the unmarried, for unmarried Christians, and the church is called to love them, this is an encouraging reminder. Your identity is not anchored in your marital status now, but in your marital status then. For those who have not or cannot enter marriage now, Scripture insists that celibate singleness is not missing out on ultimate joy and meaning. It's not inferior. 
It's not incompleteness. It's a posture of taking the Lord at his word, confident he's using this unmarried walk to prepare you for a greater relationship, a greater reality in the age to come. Unmarried Christian, be encouraged. You're not, in an ultimate sense, missing out on anything. You are destined for such satisfaction that marriage can't even compare to it. Then there's also those of us who are married here today, and some of us for whom marriage feels like it's been more of a disappointment than a delight. And hearing that there's no marriage and glory actually feels like somewhat of a relief to you. If that's you, friend, I, I want you to understand that in calling marriage a placeholder or a picture, we aren't in any way denigrating the importance and value of marriage. It's meant to put marriage in its proper place, to value it accordingly. In fact, it, it should cause some of us to value marriage more than we do right now because of what it's meant to point us toward. And so even in your marriage now, I ask you, are, are, are you seeking, with God's help, to make your marriage something of a vision of that glory to be revealed? Are you seeking to, to know your spouse and to be known by your spouse in a way that shows onlookers what it is you're truly hoping for? Do you view the, the mission of your marriage as serving this divine, delightful purpose and living in a way so that it might actually be achieved? That's what you're called to in Christian marriage. If you need help in this, we are are your church family. We are here to help you. Ask your community group, your community group leader, your shepherding elder. We are here to help you. We want to help you and in your marriage to be living in light of this purpose. We're here for you. We want your marriage to be a faithful picture of that eternal union and communion that we'll have with our Savior in that day for his glory, for your joy. And there's also those of us in this room who are so happily married, so happily. I'm, I'm blessed to count myself among them. And if that's you, you might look at this text and you feel, I don't know, you feel like it saddens you a little bit. No longer being married to your spouse seems like it would be a real disappointment. I can encourage you, friend, take God at his word. Trust that your satisfaction in him and in his perfected creation will be so complete that it will seem entirely appropriate that your marriage has met its conclusion. Again, Lanier says about this, in that age, if God grants the joy of bumping into our earthly spouse, of recalling old inside jokes, of giving each other a knowing glance as we worship the lamb, we won't grieve what was lost will only rejoice in what was gained. And if given the opportunity, we might say to our earthly spouse, thank you for helping me prepare for this. Friends, for all of us, marriage marriage is a glorious thing, but it's nothing when compared to the glory that will be revealed. It's a wondrous thing, but it's nothing compared to the wonder of resurrection. And we can trust God that this is true because his word is true. Look at me last at the word of truth. And Jesus says that these Sadducees are wrong because they know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And here he, he, he takes them to the scriptures to show them that they're wrong. And remember, these Sadducees, they don't accept the writings, the Psalms and Proverbs, etc., or the prophets, which 
includes what we today call the prophets as well as the historical books of the Old Testament. They don't accept those as part of their canon. They only accept the first five books, which you could imagine why they might then reject the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. Because some of the more explicit passages when it comes to that doctrine are found in texts like Job 19, 25 through 27, Daniel 12, Isaiah 26, 19, Ezekiel 37, and passages like that. But in the first five books of the Bible, the resurrection of the body is not explicitly laid out for us. However, that doesn't mean it's not there. And so Jesus essentially says, you guys only accept the Torah? No problem. And he shows them that the Torah itself attests to the power of God concerning the resurrection of the dead. And he defeats them on their own turf. It's really brilliant. Look at verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And so he brings up Exodus 3. And in Exodus 3, Yahweh appears to Moses in a bush. That's why Jesus says in the passage about the bush, which I think is a really cool way of identifying it. And there, Yahweh tells Moses that he's about to make good on his promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He's about to rescue his people from the vice grip of Egyptian slavery, and he's going to bring them home to the promised land where they might dwell secure. And the way that Yahweh identifies himself to Moses is by referring to himself as the covenant God of Moses' forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when he does this, he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am, present tense, right now. And there's a couple of reasons why that's important. For one, it means that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob currently exist in some way, shape, or form. They did not just cease to exist at death, as the Sadducees might have assumed, since they thought death was it. This passage assumes that these guys still continue to exist in some form. Jesus makes this clear, because he says God is right now the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That means that they are, apart from their bodies, in some way, still continuing to live and exist. He's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. But then secondly, it's also important because that means that those promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they themselves would inherit this land and this city, were still in effect. And that God would make good on those promises to these patriarchs. Not just for their descendants, but for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob themselves. If you go a little further to Exodus 6.4, you find Yahweh say that he promised to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the land of Canaan. Not just their descendants, but them. And of course, you kn- we know now that the promise of inheriting the land of Canaan was really just a type of inheriting the whole new creation cosmos. That's why Paul says in Romans 4.13 that to Abraham, God promised that he would inherit the whole of the cosmos. That he would inherit the whole of the cosmos. Romans 4.13. The land promise, like marriage, was merely a placeholder that pointed to something much greater, the inheritance of the new creation. And that's what Abraham was ultimately looking forward to, as Hebrews 11.10 puts it. Abraham was looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose 
built designer and builder is God. And so here, I know this is complicated, essentially to boil it down, that Jesus is saying that if Abraham and the others were going to inherit this new creation cosmos, well, that means that they themselves will be raised from the dead at some point. So to sum it all up, Jesus' argument is that based on the passage about the bush, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still continue to exist in the intermediate state, and that God's promises still thus apply to them so that one day God will raise them up in glory to dwell in this new creation cosmos with Christ forever and ever. And you might say, Jesus is arguing all of that from one sentence of the Torah? I know. In fact, from the tense of a verb, which is hilarious. And it's important to point out here, because part of the Sadducees' issue here is that they don't know the Scriptures. They don't know the Scriptures. Jesus shows us he knows the Scriptures. The Scriptures are precious to him, and so he's given himself to knowing and treasuring them up in his heart down to the very last word. Jesus is showing here that the Scriptures are God's Word. And not only that, that the Scriptures are not just God's Word in general, but the Scriptures are God's words down to every last jot and tittle, right? The the Apostle Paul here communicates this idea when he says, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is the very Word of God for us. The Scriptures are God speaking to us. But what's more is that that's not just true in a general sense so that the ideas of Scripture are His Word, but specifically the very words themselves. Jesus gets at this idea in Matthew 4.4 4, when he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word. It's important to emphasize. It's important to emphasize that as Christians, we don't just hold to the ideas of Scripture being inspired by God, but the very words themselves. You should remember that. Listen, we we confess this doctrine that we call verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary inspiration. You should write that down. We confess here verbal plenary inspiration. Inspiration means that God supernaturally or providentially guided all of Scripture's human authors as they wrote Scripture. Plenary means full or complete, meaning all of Scripture is God's inspired word and verbal. Verbal means that it's not just the ideas behind the words that are inspired, but the very words of the original manuscripts themselves. Each of them in the original manuscripts are intentional, inspired, God-breathed, God-spoken words. Now, why are we making a big deal about this? Well, friends, it means that Scripture is God's Word, and it's true down to the very tense of the verbs. And if we believe that, if we trust that Scripture is truly God's Word and God's words for us, for our life, for our knowledge, for our comfort, for our understanding, for our transformation, then shouldn't we be so devoted to knowing it and treasuring it in our hearts and applying it to our lives? It's just not the main problem with the Sadducees. They don't know the Scriptures. May that not be said of us. May we be a people so devoted to knowing and understanding the Word of God. And and that's something that's 
important for the people of God in every generation? Of course it is. But guys, I'm convinced that this is in particular need of being highlighted for our generation. Because I, I, just, I just came across some stats this last week detailing some, some of our generation's use of the internet and social media, and it was disturbing. One stat said that almost 50% of U.S. teens say that they use the internet almost constantly. And for the others, it, it wasn't honestly much better. And I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that for adults, it's probably similar. It's probably not much better. And many of us are exposed far more to our, our social media algorithms and what these guys in, in Silicon Valley want us to see more than we are to the scriptures in our church family. I have pastor friends who worry, and I, I worry. Sometimes it's frightening to think that for some of us, we got an hour and a half a week. And that's it. And maybe some of us even less than that, an hour and a half a couple times a month. But the internet has our attention almost constantly. Almost constantly. Some of you could very well be more discipled and mentored by your social media algorithms than by your Bible and your church family. And if I know anything about social media and the internet, it's this. It's probably not going to be a crucial help for making you more like Christ. It's probably not stirring you up and encouraging you with the truth of our hope in Christ. It's probably not a faithful comfort to you when you're discouraged and disheartened. And so I ask you, could, could the Lord possibly be calling you to set some more healthy parameters around your use of technology? Is he, is he beckoning you into a deeper life in the Word, joining some of these wonderful Bible studies that men and women in our church are starting? Is he, is he beckoning you into more of a faithful and consistent presence on Sunday mornings or community group? Is he calling you into more regular times in his word to instead of just rolling over and scrolling through social media in the morning, instead grabbing your Bible and listening to and being encouraged by and helped by the voice of your father? Is he beckoning you into a deeper knowledge of his word and power? Is he beckoning you into a deeper knowledge of Christ and his gospel through his word? Because here as we conclude... The main reason that the scriptures are so dear to us as followers of Christ is because they're that which reveals Christ to us. Even if we knew the scriptures much better than we do now, we completely miss the point if we don't see that Christ is their ultimate aim and goal. And Jesus himself said to a group of challengers in John 5, 39 and 40, you search the scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Indeed, you can read and know the scriptures in such a way wherein you still completely miss the point. So as we give ourselves to reading and knowing and understanding the scriptures as a community, we have to do so in a way that sees Christ as their ultimate goal and aim. We have to come to the word of God to find that God is not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died and who was raised and is now living forevermore. We have to come to the scriptures in order to be stirred up and encouraged by the fact that God will not only raise up Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all of us up on the last day to reign in his forever kingdom, but that he has already raised Christ from the dead, the first fruits of our resurrection. He's given us a guarantee of our own by raising Christ from the dead. 
In the scriptures, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, which is ultimately preparing us for the fullness of glory in the last day when Christ returns to come and take his bride for his own, granting us the wonder of resurrection life with him forever and ever. This is why we want to give ourselves to knowing the word of God so that we might know the word of God and the power of God in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would seal this word upon our hearts, that we would be a people who know the word and who know the power of your holy name, that we would give ourselves to knowing your word, being a people who, who proclaim and experience your power. We pray that even as we come to the Lord's Supper now, that this would be confirmed in our hearts and that we would be changed and sanctified through your word. Your word is truth. Be granted Christ-likeness in all things. We pray in his name. Amen.